Support for Long Form this week comes from listening. If you've ever had to rip through a huge pile of academic papers, you know how painful it can be to spend all that time staring at a piece of paper. Listening makes it really simple to convert anything you have to read into spoken words that you can enjoy on the go. Uses AI to generate realistic voices that sound like actual human beings. Plus, it comes with a powerful set of tools that allows you to do stuff like skip over non-essential text, but also take notes with one click. Your life just got a lot easier. Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. In 2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S. designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. Uh, I'm Aaron Lammer. I'm here with my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Hey, you guys. Hey, Aaron. It's nice to see you. Love your sweatshirt. Oh, thank you. Uh, this week on the show, I'll tell you, I'm going to give the listeners a little uh, behind the scenes uh, insight into how the show comes together. I was sitting in my chair and I was uh, reading an uh, article about disinformation. Um, not so much like oh, God, we need to be worried about disinformation, but, like, what is disinformation? And who are the people who are sort of building careers around expertise in disinformation? And what does it mean that uh, we now have a governmental advisory body uh, within the Department of Homeland Security dedicated to disinformation, which is a thing that I and I think many other people have trouble uh, defining exactly what it is. Uh, so then I, uh, I leafed uh, at the end of the article. I was like, well, I could actually just talk to the person who wrote this article on the show. Uh, it was Joe Bernstein, who is someone whose work I have enjoyed for a long time. Uh, he has been covering tech and several other verticals at uh, BuzzFeed News. He writes a lot about political polarization. He wrote a really interesting story about uh, this battle over wind farms and the politics of uh, whether or not you want a wind farm in your community. Lots of surprises in there. I won't spoil any of them. Uh, but uh, great talking to him. A really interesting writer who uh, covers stuff that like I wouldn't even really think of as something to write about in a way that is really interesting, at least to me. Yeah, he really finds sort of subtle threads through extremely polarizing, difficult topics, I find. Absolutely. Uh, this show is brought to you in partnership with Vox Media, who help us make it. Thanks to everyone over at Vox. And now here's Aaron with Joe Bernstein. Hello, and uh, welcome to my guest, Joe Bernstein. Hi, great to be here. So you've been a reporter at BuzzFeed News covering technology for, I want to say, like more than half a decade? Yeah, I mean, I've worn a bunch of hats at BuzzFeed, um, 
but I've sort of been writing, you know, narrative feature stories about my kind of spiel as I write about the way tech is changing the way Americans see themselves and each other. Um, and so I, that's sort of the through line in my stories. And I've been doing that for about five, six years, but I haven't been at BuzzFeed since um, 2013. You published a piece about disinformation in Harper's. In your own run as a reporter, um, I'm sort of curious about how your own views on disinformation have changed over time, and also when this topic became a like a big part of your reporting or became a thing that one had to address in reporting about the technology industry. Right. I mean, that's a great question. It's a huge question. I would go back to when I think a lot of people, certainly myself, first started thinking about the problems with politics on the Internet, um, which was really in 2014, I would say, um, around Gamergate, which is ancient Internet ancient history less than a decade ago. But you have to remember, I mean, the prevailing notion around politics on the Internet uh, in the late aughts and early 2010s, both because, uh, certainly among liberals, because Obama was seen to have used Facebook to essentially have won two elections, and then Facebook played and Twitter played such key roles in the Arab Spring, which was sort of still um, seen as an unalloyed good. Um, the perception was so different. And so I think there was a group of reporters who were kind of internet native, um, you know, I, I'm one of them who saw the beginning of a cultural backlash, you know, the one that I think it culminated in many ways with the election of Trump in 2016 um, happening on social media. And, you know, again, I mean, this is this almost now so much has happened. This feels like ancient history. But I mean, the narrative was that one of the major reasons Trump won is because uh, the Russian government or agents of the Russian government were pushing disinformation that was tricking the American public into voting for Trump. And that was a story that was kind of split between tech reporters and politics reporters. The tech reporters were interested in the way that the platforms were used to disseminate information and the politics reporters were interested in the way that this may or may not have you know, affected the electorate. And then it became a live political question, of course, because it was used as a cudgel against Trump for the first, you know, several years of his presidency until a lot of that stuff sort of, um, you know, a lot of that reporting either wasn't borne out or, you know, there's various, you know, reports from social scientists and um, that kind of show that the effect of this stuff was limited on the public. But certainly it was a live question in the first half. And I mean, it's still a live question. I think it's dying down a little bit. I've never been particularly comfortable with that term. Um, I think it's better to call something propaganda uh, because propaganda, I think people have a better just sort of gut sense of what propaganda is um, than disinformation, which has this kind of patina of like scientific or empirical validity that just like really isn't there when you're talking about what are essentially political conflicts um, over information. And so, you know, I <laughs> before I published this piece in Harper's, we can get into that. I went back and I looked through all my stories for BuzzFeed and I thought, geez, I hope there's no story where I'm just like pants on fire talking about disinformation. 
I also went through your BuzzFeed archive to look at that just because I thought it would help this question uh, if there was one. Unfortunately, it doesn't seem like there really is one. Yeah, so I don't think I'm actually a hypocrite, which is always nice to find out. Um, But like, certainly there is an appetite for those stories everywhere. I think that the question of information, the way it's disseminated and you know, received over the internet and like the powerful actors who are like, these are all really interesting questions that are completely valid subject matter for reporting. And and there's a lot of great reporting on them. So, you know, some of which I am, you know, flatter myself to think that I've done, but I do think as a sort of like basic framework for understanding the way that like people believe things, uh, at least in America, I, I don't want to, you know, one of my criticisms of this framework is that it's like one size fits all. And I think like context is very important. Um, but at least in the States, I think, um, social media as a vector of disinformation is like over indexed. And that was certainly my feeling when I wrote this piece. And I think in some ways the piece, you know, aspects of the piece have been borne out. This is all part of like an ongoing series inside my own brain, which is like revisiting 2014 to 2016 and interrogating what was happening in my brain. And I think, yeah, um, for me, I'm not a huge contrarian, nor am I like a huge like cheerleader, I guess, for like things I, like I'm generally kind of like uh, like lukewarm all the time. But <laughs> what feels like happened was there was this idea that viral misinformation was uh, both swaying U.S. elections and infecting in an almost scientific manner the brains of the American masses. Yeah. And the overall warning was watch out for that viral story or watch out for what that viral story could do to your neighbors. And in fact, maybe like the whole study of misinformation is itself a viral story that proved very popular um, that like uses many of the same techniques of propaganda that the thing that it was seeking to criticize. So, you know, how, how does all that stuff sort of look with a, a bit of hindsight? And what do you think the origins of this idea really are? Yeah, I mean, I um, the way we produce cultural narratives is, is just like a very interesting question. It's um, again, it's another it's another you know, it's something that people are very aware of now because people know more about the production of media than ever. Um, one of the things that I get into in the piece, and, and, and to come back to what you were saying, uh, about this sort of like creation of narratives, that's why the subhead of the piece is selling the story of disinformation. Uh, it is a story about the way the American public behaves and for people to believe a story they need, you know, if it's a story about persuasion, it's no different than, you know, sort of any kind of big cultural narrative. They need data points and like the huge, huge data point, the kind of shocking, like mental break that happened for a lot of Americans, you know, myself included, although uh, my mother, for some reason, always insists that I said Trump was going to win. I didn't think Trump was going to win. People were really, really fucking shocked that Trump won. And like, I think in some ways we like still haven't fully probed how much of a like shock that not just a shock, but like a before and an after, like a seismic event. And I think very, very quickly people started looking for answers. Um, 
And that's, that's, that's the most natural thing in the world. Why did this thing that completely uh, contradicts my prior experience of, you know, the country I live in happen? Uh, this thing that shakes my basic foundational beliefs. And there's a number of different contesting narratives. And we saw those play out, right? So there was America has always been this deeply racist country. Uh, that was one. And that this was a reaction in many ways to Obama. Two, Democrats did not pay attention to like the Reagan Democrats, you know, the Midwestern Democrat. And that was sort of more of the left argument. And I think those things are both true and they interacted. And, we, you know, of course, these things can all be true at the same time. One was Trump only won because um, there was this outside force change in society that we were unprepared for technology that we had not priced in is playing this crazy new role in society. And and I think that's partially true as well. I mean, those things like that's a big question and it needed to be answered. But unfortunately, I think it became a kind of coping mechanism for people who maybe didn't want to look at some deeper structural issues in the country and some just like historical reasons why the West may be voting for demagogues and fascists right now. Um, and what's interesting in some ways, and maybe this is what you're getting at, is like the question of disinformation is almost an attempt to create a new mythology around why people act the way they do. And it's not, I don't mean to say that it's some kind of like nefarious plot. It's just like, it's an, it's a, and again, I'm searching for an adjective that isn't derisive because I don't mean it this way, but it's a, it's a natural or in like a convenient explanation. And that's why I think it caught on for some time anyway. I think this becomes interesting in the context of journalism, because in some ways, journalism is like a grand A-B testing of what explanations people will and will not accept. I don't necessarily mean like fact-based reporting, but let's say take-based reporting is in some ways like trying a bunch of explanations and seeing which ones make people angry which ones make people feel <laughs> comforted and yeah. which ones people are really willing to share also. Yeah. And like, then it becomes a question of your audience and which part of your audience do you like, you know, if you look at Fox news, it's a great example of, um, you know, the times had this good series by Nick Confessor about, um, you know, Tucker Carlson becoming this basically rabid far right demagogue. And in some ways what he was doing was following his audience. That's what the audience wanted. And the more he leaned into this stuff, the bigger his audience grew. And what, really what he was doing was subsuming a lot of the energy, having reported on some of these people, he was subsuming the energy of the kind of um, like riotous uh, far-right media ecosystem around 2015 and 2016, which was really was coming for Fox, which was seen prior to Trump as kind of, I think, in the tank for like either Rubio or, or, or Cruz. And I think they were actually like genuinely frightened of Breitbart. Um, which, you know, who's thought about Breitbart recently, partially because Fox followed that audience, which was looking for these sort of like simplistic explanations for why they're unhappy with the state of the country. They also happen to be, you know, sort of deeply xenophobic and racist explanations. But yeah, I mean, giving the audience what it wants is um, that's a feature of media in, in, you know, a big feature of media in 2022. I mean, to take it to take it back to the A B test, which I think is a great metaphor, um, you know, one of the things that astounded me when I started at BuzzFeed 
was the CMS that lets you see which headline played better. And like, if you just think about the way most people consume media, a lot of it is just reading headlines. And like, if the headline that's more popular is the one that travels, um, or like the one that, you know, wins out in the AB test. Yeah. I mean, you do have essentially, and I don't want to overstate the case. I mean, editors are still giving, you know, editorial direction and, you know, care about certain causes and, you know, frame coverage in ways that reflect both their training and their biases. And it's not just following the audience, but following the audience is part of it. Um, and that, and there's, you know, there's nothing that's not, that's not evil. That's not uh, sinister. It, it just is like, it's the way that media works. Uh, and I think because we have a lot of these sort of like tools that tell us about our audience and, um, you know, maybe in some ways with, you know, some places moving more to a subscription model, it's, it's, it's a little less so, but, um, yeah, I mean, I think you're completely right. Yeah. I mean, when you said the thing about testing the headlines, I can really remember my own experience very, uh, specifically when we first put, um, ads onto longform.org. And I was like, that's how internet ads work. That's the most easily gameable, flimsy, completely broken system. And anyone who's ever tinkered with it would sort of know this stuff. But I, if I hadn't, I would think that internet ads are like magically powerful. Yeah, that's a part of my piece. I mean, um, you're exactly right that, and and, you know, this is sort of what unlocked this story for me is I was thinking about how hard the tobacco companies fought the idea that cigarettes cause cancer. Um, even though there was like tons of scientific evidence that they did, even in the face of that, the tobacco companies were like, no, it just makes you look cool and like relax. Like no cancer here. Um, and it really shocked me when I thought about it in that context, how quickly Facebook and, um, and others kind of cop to the fact that um, disinformation was a huge problem. Maybe that was partially their own sort of like political naivete and like not really understanding how to do PR. That's part of it. But also I realized that it was kind of telling a flattering story about them, which is that um, they can convince people of anything, which is sort of what you were just getting at. Um, and then I, you know, then I was like, it clicked. It was like, oh, right. Of course, their um, their entire value proposition uh, to someone who um, has ad money to spend is that they, they can convince people of things better than other forms of media. Um, and like, there's some proof that that's true. There's also some, you know, there's, there's arguments against it as well. Um, really influential for me here was this book by Tim Wong, um, subprime attention crisis, which is just about just what you said, the flimsiness of the online ad ecosystem. And so the more I thought about it as a story that wasn't even, it wasn't existentially threatening to tech. And in fact, it seemed to be something they wanted to take on board by funding disinformation initiatives, um, by, hiring people within to look at this stuff who had sort of come from academic or media backgrounds or, or um, sort of think tanky backgrounds. Yeah. I mean, I started to think about the way they were trying to make this narrative work for them. And that is sort of what unlocked the piece for me in general. So it's, yeah, it's, um, I'm glad you picked up on that. Support for long form this week comes from listening. If you find yourself behind the eight ball needing to read a bunch of academic papers or journals or any kind of dense reading material, you might make your life a lot easier by checking out listening. It takes anything, articles, books, PDFs, and turns the text into spoken word that you can absorb no matter what you're doing. 
The app has a lifelike AI voices complete with emotion and intonation that creates a realistic and pleasant listening experience. So I had to go into the city for some meetings. I needed to review some PDFs, threw them in there, listened to them on the way. It was both pleasant and I kind of forgot that I wasn't like listening to a professionally done audiobook or something like very quickly. The voices sounded totally natural and human to me. This listening app might just transform how you consume reading material and you can give it a shot yourself risk-free. Now, normally you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use the code longform at checkout listening. Your life just got a lot easier. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Outside of like the specific ideas in this piece, you are trying to entertain a reader who is interested in this. And a lot of the things that you're writing about are people sitting at a computer, aimlessly browsing Facebook. It's, it doesn't get any less cinematic than uh, disinformation. <laughs> It's basically largely about a story about how most people are just sitting there browsing on their phones. It's like <laughs> what you would see if you were seeing the story. So how do you think about writing about a topic like this and bringing it to life for an audience beyond just the ideas that are, are contained within it? Sure. So um, I should say most of what I do is narrative feature reporting. And so my bent is very much in terms of trying to find character and scene and all that stuff. And this is very dry for me. Um, I had done this academic fellowship. So it's called the Neiman Fellowship. It's a like a year-long academic fellowship at Harvard. And you come in with a study plan. And um, I had a study plan that was sort of about like tech and alienation. It was pretty, it was not very well defined. And I, I took this really, really good um, grad seminar uh, in something called science and technology studies which is basically, I'm not going to do a good job defining it, but it's a, it's a, it's, it's a way of looking at those fields as a product of social relations rather than as sort of the discovery of empirical fact. And um, I did a lot of really but kind of bone dry theoretical reading. And I sort of was having these realizations about this field at the same time, particularly um, one of the big ideas in STS is like how expertise is formed. Um, just like why we trust certain people and not others. And I realized that there was this class of sort of quote unquote experts in disinformation who were like literally appearing before my eyes. So I wrote the final paper for the class, which, you know, I mean, I, <laughs> I, it was, you audit all the classes as the Neiman. So I wasn't writing it for grade. And I tried, I guess I wanted to like entertain the professor a little bit because I figured what she was reading, she's the kind of, you know, she's a giant in this field and she's been reading bone dry stuff for a long time. And I think she kind of like um, one of the reasons she likes to have Neiman's or journalists in the class is because um, we can write a little bit. 
So I tried to write it to entertain hers. It was still very, very dry. And when I sent it to Harper's and my editor on the piece, this uh, Matthew Sherrill's great editor himself did a PhD in English. And he said, you know, this kind of took me back to my grad school days. Can you dumb it down? And I was like, well, yeah, sure. Um, Which is kind of funny because like, usually I'm thinking in terms of a very, like, I'm not thinking in terms of like a highfalutin audience. So you, uh, you went to a year long graduate seminar. What inspired you to do that? And what was your previous uh, education as a journalist like? What's your path? Yeah, um, I, I went to Northwestern, which has a journalism program that I didn't do. And uh, I was like very judgmental of the people who did Medill. And I was like, oh, yeah, why would you like, why would you do that? Why would you pay for something? You know, you don't like need to, you don't need to be trained to be a journalist. And then, of course, uh, in 18 months after graduation, I was like, well, what the fuck am I going to do with myself? I was working as a copywriter for Sony's, not having a lot of fun. So I applied to graduate journalism school. <laughs> and uh, I went to Columbia and um, uh, the one class that really sort of lit my brain on fire in terms of how to write features and how to write narrative journalism was a class taught by a guy named Sam Friedman. Uh, I think he still teaches there. He was a religion columnist at the Times for a long time, but he's kind of ma- underappreciated master of narrative nonfiction books. It was a book writing seminar, and it was a lot of just like, how do you write a scene that, you know, where everything, <laughs> where nothing can be made up? Like, how do you do, like getting comfortable doing that? A ton of that kind of stuff. And I think I did develop a set of skills, a specific, very particular set of skills that really has borne me in good stead in my career. So I knew I wanted to do that kind of thing. At the time, the way to break into magazine journalism was to do a Harper's internship after whatever. And so I did the Harper's internship, uh, I guess, in 2010. I'm going to use that for our intro of a supercut episode of everyone who's been on this show talking about their Harper's internship. Absolutely correct that that is uh, the dominant, uh, most likely way that people entered journalism at that period. Yeah, I mean, it was a intimidating and really awesome place to um, to be. They didn't pay us, which was a massive fucking bummer. Um, and there were lots of problems with it, but um, I learned a lot. That's where I really learned how to report, which is funny because it's like a literary magazine or like it has this sort of literary character, but. Um, the interns report a tremendous amount. That index, I mean, the basic function of the Harper's intern is to re-report the statistics that go into the index, which is time-consuming. And you learn a ton about like what publications get away with, how they source. You learn which publications are like basically full of shit. And that's how I learned how many Alamo Cannonballs Phil Collins has. Um, he, Phil Collins, like the Phil Collins is the world's, I think, most prolific collector of cannonballs that were fired or uh, brought to the Battle of the Alamo. And I somehow got his email and we talked on the phone and he put me on hold and counted all the cannonballs because that was the statistic for the index. So I did the Harper's internship. I did what a lot of people do after that internship, which is I bounced around fact-checking for a couple of years. Um, That's when I sort of, there's, you know, good exposure to the way that feature writers put a story together, uh, the way they, you know, write a paragraph out of clips or, um, or, you know, build a scene, um, you know, those kinds of things. You see how different writers work. Um, and then I was bored, really bored, um, because you can only do so much fact checking. 
And actually, Aaron, I think I may have met you very briefly in the, my next job. Did you at some point have a lunch meeting on the Lower East Side with Jamin Warren, the founder of Killscreen? Yes. I remember um, this distinctly. We were in like kind of like one of those like weird kind of like coffee shops. It doesn't seem like it would be able to pay its rent yes. in Chinatown. I'm so glad met- you I'm so glad you remember. That was me. Um I had more hair and um <laughs> two fewer kids. It was at the um it was at kind of the heyday of Killscreen, which like uh kill screen for people who are listening was like a high quality long form reported i think quarterly journal about video games and video game culture that's exactly right jamin had a vision shouts to jamin um he hired me to be the editor for a little while um and it was a great idea it was really fun while it lasted i was not there long because um as it so happened uh Ben Smith had taken over at BuzzFeed and he had this tech desk, which was run by two guys who are now my dear friends and um, unbelievably talented journalists, uh, Matt Buchanan, uh, who I think is currently the executive editor or deputy executive editor of Eater, and John Herman, uh, who is a columnist uh, for the Times uh, style section, were covering tech in a pretty unique way for, you know, 2012, 2013. And they wanted someone to write about games. So, um, you know, kind of cover gaming from a cultural and political standpoint and not sort of from the, not in the way that kind of Kotaku and those places were doing it at the time. So they took me to Drake's and then I had a single interview with Ben Smith where he said, um, are you sure you can report? And I said, yes, I can't Ben. And they hired me. They were hiring like gangbusters at the time. And I covered games for, I don't know, somewhere between a year and 18 months. There's a lot of staff turnover for a while. I was, um, working as Charlie Warzel, I think has done the show as his deputy, um, on the tech section. Then they really staffed up the tech section. And I basically told my editor at the time, um, a guy named Matt Honan, who is now the editor of MIT Tech Review, um, you know, my value to this section is not just writing about games. Like, I should be writing narrative, like, features. And that's what he put me up to. And I think the way I got into what I've sort of been writing about for the past five, six years is, is through Gamergate. Um, and, and sort of that naturally led to writing about the right wing media, writing about and then questioning sort of the premises of, um, media radicalization. Um, and, um, you know, it sort of brought me into this now fairly saturated space about tech, politics, media, and culture. Um, you know, the big story right now, I think, and the one that I'm, you know, looking forward to covering more is about the the sort of cultural backlash that's happening. Um, I had a piece um, about this um, sort of downtown New York film festival for these kind of like this very small but um, very like bleeding edge hipster, if that's a word you can still use, which I don't think it is, um, group of kids that was a film festival that was funded by Peter Thiel. And um, that direction in the culture is, is pretty interesting. Yeah, I, I do want to talk about that story, too. Oh, great. OK. Now that we've logically arrived at it. So that's a story that uh, does not fall under the this is a boring story about a bunch of people all on their computers. <laughs> it actually involves people breaking the fourth wall and uh, going off into the world. I'm going to is it OK if I spoil the end of the story? Please do. And I'll tell you a little bit about that. Because I'm interested. I think it's an interesting story on multiple levels that you make a very dramatic decision. The main character of the story, uh, we learn 
pretty close to the end of the story uh, uh, dies during the course of the story. Tell me about like structuring that story, reporting that story, how, how you ended up on it in that formation. It's also a pretty long story. So yeah. by the time he dies, you've been with him for a fairly long time. Yeah. Um, in the first half of the story, I tease, I mean, I hate using these terms, these journalistic terms, because they're not sufficient for talking about a real person uh, who led a pretty amazing life for such a young person and, and died. But I tease the death. You know, there's another story that came out around the same time, a uh, good story in New York Magazine about the assistant to Hamilton Morris, who has that show about uh, Hamilton's psychopharmacology or whatever it's called for Vice, who, who died. Um, and it, it's, it tells a somewhat similar story. And I think... That was a more traditional, you know, you start with the most interesting thing or the most dramatic thing, which is that the character dies. And then, you you know, the, the question is raised in the reader. How did this person, how did, the, how do we get to this point? That's sort of a more classic, like, how did this promising figure die? What led to this? This is a complicated story that not to say that that was, that was also a very complicated, well-handled story. And as I said, in my first draft, uh, I show that the main character dies. I felt that the material in the story was compelling enough and also that the character grows in significance throughout the course of the story that getting people attached to him, understanding the pro the sort of world he comes out of, and then at the end showing how um, I don't want to say anything as simplistic as like this world killed him because it's not true, but um, how he became maybe tortured about the role he was playing may have played some role in um, what happened. Um, and I just felt like if someone is going to stick with this story, that will be the most eff like effective way to communicate that in like the most effective narrative way. I also didn't think that like, like why did he die was necessarily like a, like if you put it in the beginning, it necessarily sets it up as a mystery. And I didn't think that was totally appropriate. So part of it was my own ambivalence about what his death meant in the context of the story, which I, in some ways cop out wanted the reader to, to sort of digest the facts and, form their own feelings um but uh i was i was completely torn the first draft again i think in the even in the first few sentences i say that the main character dies um and then i think we went back and forth my editors and i went back and forth and felt like there's so, enough happening that will keep people interested in this piece enough kind of cultural strands that people are talking about and also like my whole <laughs> When I started reporting this story, I was like, oh, this is the actual vibe. Like everyone was talking about the Allison Davis story again in New York Magazine about the vibe shift. And I was like, well, what the fuck is what, what, the, what the fuck is the vibe shift? Like this is it's a vibe. What are you talking about? Like this was the actual vibe shift happening in real time. Like so I felt like there was enough like the conversation was happening to the extent that um, it didn't need the kind of traditional narrative torquing that you would put on a story like this. Um, and so that, yeah, that's how I decided to do that. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. 
all the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters and what do I even say other than hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. That story does a really good job, in my opinion, of understanding a complicated cultural milieu, a complicated vibe, if you will, <laughs> that I think yeah. most people I come in contact with are both knee-jerk against and also only very lightly familiar with what's actually going on. like. Unless you're extremely, extremely online, uh, understanding, let's say, like the politics of the Red Scare podcast, I don't know. You got to give me like two hours to explain it. And even then, I'm like, <laughs> honestly, you ought to just go listen to it. like a lot of this stuff. I'm like, you'd actually be better off going to the source material to understand what's going on than getting an explainer. Yeah. But since you can't just be like, hyperlinked to a podcast episode, please listen to this and then come back to our story. Like, how did you think about unpacking these, like both ironic uh, symbolism, rich and kind of deeply like internet subculture-y uh, spaces that this film festival sprang out of? I mean, I was aware of this stuff on a, probably the same level you're talking about. I knew what red scare was like, I follow, the hosts on Instagram, you know, and I saw Dasha, the one of the hosts on um, Succession. And I guess I basically thought of them as like a boutique media product um, that like they were just kind of into shocking people. And like, so what? Um, I don't necessarily like think their politics are that cute, but like, you know, I don't. It also is like, who cares? Also, like a fair amount have been written about them. Like there was a big story about them in New York Magazine a couple of years ago. Dasha was profiled in The Times like. They know how to get media attention. So um, I don't know that I was like so interested in writing about that world until I got a tip that Peter Thiel was funding these like downtown podcasts. I started looking, you know, I was like, oh, like what editor wouldn't hear that pitch and be like, holy shit. Yeah, report this. So I started looking online and I quickly saw that um, there was this film festival where they were like kind of openly joking about Thiel funding it. And then, like, also the host of it, or, like, the creative director died and, like, no one had written anything about him. And, like, the more I started reading about him, like, or just, like, digesting his social media presence, I was like, man, this kid was, like, a genius and, like, the harbinger of something. And, like, this is a story. It's, like, you have this kind of fermenting scene, which, like, on its own is maybe not, like, a narrative story or, like, 
you, the way into writing about it is like, you can't just be like, this is a thing that exists. Like that's my least favorite kind of like internet reporting, but you have a story for two reasons. The first is that there's this like very interested, like VC money. And the other is that, um, this guy died, you know, on the last night of this, like what should have been his like moment of triumph. And so I really learned a lot more about this scene once I started looking into the character. And so, you know, this is like, I, I think maybe a lot of reporters and particularly people who like write narrative, they're not like honest enough about how you need to get lucky sometimes. And like, this is a case where no one looked into it. I found this guy. It turned out he was an incredible character who had this whole social world around him that was really interesting, that he connected um, these sort of like various um, networks and that we're all at the center of these like social trends that um, that like like elite media culture is currently obsessed with like one thing that people barely wanted to talk about with this story is that it's also a me too story, like a big me too. It's like an aftermath of me too story to do a very brief explanation. Why um, this kid, the main character, Trevor Bazile essentially became involved with this film festival because the film festival that he cut his teeth on and that he was probably going to become director of collapsed because, um, the guy who ran it was accused um, was accused of a sexual assault. So, you know, the main character sort of deeply resented the accusers who he didn't believe. And that's not sort of the point of the story. But he blamed like Me Too culture for like fucking over his career. And like to me, that was like a maybe I didn't I didn't want to sort of overemphasize that because I didn't want to litigate the cases that I had. To, I was talking about in the piece. But like, you know, it's a Me Too story. It was a cultural backlash story. It's a story about young online people. It's a story about Silicon Valley money. And they were all larded into this one guy. You know, you have to do the work once you get lucky. But um, yeah, I guess I also got lucky. Before I let you go, there's there's one other of your stories that I wanted to talk to you about, which is uh, a story about uh, wind farms. Yeah, yeah. And I want to say Michigan. That's right. In, in Western Michigan, yeah. So I think what sort of captured me is why this story is interesting to me is, and I'm generally interested in stories like this. Um, it does not map neatly to the political spectrum. You have like liberals fighting to uh, remove green energy uh, sources and you have um, fights within uh, conservative communities that are like to bring in a green energy source. Um, and that kind of animates not just the like American left right spectrum, but the like strange bedfellows and who is actually sacrificing to make uh, climate change uh, action possible. Right. It, it actually gives real stakes to it. So I'm curious about how you think about a story like that and and also how you navigate the sort of political assumptions that someone might have about who would or would not want a wind farm in their backyard. Yeah. So um, to kind of come full circle, after I wrote the disinformation story, I was like, man, I better put my money where my mouth is and write a story about the effect of social media on politics where I can like be very granular and like try and show how it really works in like real time. Um, and so I, again, I got lucky. Um, 
a uh, uh, academic, um, very smart, um, I think he's a rural sociologist at Ohio State, had done some really cool research on this, on these um, Facebook groups, um, where local residents organized to, to protest um, to protest wind farms, wind farm development. And um, he sent it to me and he said, I liked your disinformation piece, but I think this is like the context you're looking for. And um, again, I read his paper and I started looking at these groups and no one had really written about it. And um, I thought it illustrated a couple of things. The first, a granular story about how sort of like the energy transformation happens, which I don't, you know, it's not my background as a reporter, but I am interested in it. Um, it's a story about local politics and, um, you know, the way that um, activists are taking over local government and, and like, you know, these sort of sleepy townships in Michigan where like people have served on the same community board for, you know, like 60, like local farmers for 60 years. And all of a sudden there are these like, you know, hot blooded activists who are like tearing these communities apart over, you know, over wind farms. Um, and they have, some of them have legitimate concerns. So, um, then in terms of like mixing up the left, right thing, you know, this is like, a um, you know, bias in journalism towards novelty, like, uh, man bites dog. I'm more interested in that than dog bites man. And um, you're absolutely right that that's one of the most interesting things about the story, um, that this issue sort of brings um, sort of like a certain kind of environmentalist uh, and a sort of certain kind of deeply conservative NIMBY onto the same side against uh, big farmers and sort of people, you know, coastal people who are like, well, what are we doing about climate change? And so, yeah, that was absolutely one of the most interesting questions in the, in the, for me in, in, in reporting the piece. And, um, you know, I found this happens to be an issue that, like, ha there not much been written about it, but there is a lot of local activism and there is a lot of organization. And, like, there's money behind – there's money lobbying behind the wind stuff. And so, like, they had some research and, you know, put me in contact with characters and, like – um, again, this is one that seems really complicated, but it came together pretty fast because there's a lot of expertise. There's a lot of local expertise. Um, and increasingly, um, I am interested in local stories that tell a bigger, you know, that tell a bigger thing about, that's not like novel or anything, but it's my, you know, I think I, I'm so exhausted, um, by like big national culture war stories in some ways for the same reasons that like, just like internet activity stories bore me because, if you're talking about these like big cultural narratives, you don't like, there's a lot of passion and a lot of like, there's a lot of heat, but there's not necessarily a lot of like light or like this sort of like things we would normally like seize onto in a narrative, like, you know, people acting in conflict with themselves and like their family members and like their community. Um, and so that's what attracted me to, to this piece. And certainly the fact that the politics are a little confusing attracted me as well. Joe, thank you so much for this interview. Yeah, thanks, Aaron. Thanks for listening to the Long Forum Podcast. I'm your co-host, Aaron Lammer. My other co-hosts are Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Thanks to them. Thanks to my guest, Joe Bernstein. Thanks to our editor for this episode, Seth Kelly. Thanks to our intern, Noelle Mutier. Thanks to everyone over at Vox Media. We'll be back with a new episode next week.
Support for Longform this week came from Listening. Listening makes it easy to convert written text to pleasant audio tracks you can take in no matter what you're doing. It offers AI voices that manage to express emotion and correctly pronounce complicated technical terms, all while sounding like actual human beings, not robots. The listening app might just transform how you consume reading material, and you can give it a shot for yourself risk-free. Normally, you get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. Listening. Your life just got a lot easier. 